Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. I'm going to go out on a limb and bet that most of us can probably name our country's founding fathers. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and of course, Alexander Hamilton. Thank you very much, Lin-Manuel Miranda. But here's something we were likely not taught in school. The pivotal role women played in the rebellion against British rule. Clearly a sin of omission when it comes to teaching American history. And one, Dr. Carol Birkin, President Professor of History Emerita at Baruch College and the Graduate Center City University of New York has worked to correct. Dr. Birkin is the author of several books, including First Generations, Women in Colonial America, A Brilliant Solution, Inventing the American Constitution, Revolutionary Mothers, Women in the Struggle for America's Independence, and most recently, A Sovereign People, The Crises of the 1790s and the Birth of American Nationalism. Oh, there's more. Professor Birkin's expertise makes her a frequent contributor on PBS and History Channel documentaries about early American and Revolutionary Era history. She also edits the Gilder Lehman online journal, History Now serves on the scholarly boards of several professional organizations, including the National Museum of Women's History and the New York Historical Society's Center for American Women's History. And she's an elected member of the Society of American Historians and the American Antiquarian Society. Professor Carol Birkin, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Let's really go back in time. Did you always have a, a love, a fascination with American history? <laughs> I was educated or not educated in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> that should tell you something. Yeah, volumes. Our history class in the 11th grade consisted of the professor who I... Professor? The teacher. Uh, okay. She actually had a PhD. One of the strange things is that there were many Southern women in the 1920s who went north and got PhD. She had a PhD from Columbia University. You're kidding. And then came home to take care of their aged parents and were, of course, spinsters. So I called her Miss Forehand, my father and mother being from Connecticut and New York. But she called herself Miss Forehand. <laughs> and what happened in class was she recited every single battle in the Civil War with how many men and how many horses were wounded or killed, and you wrote it back the next day. That was the survey of American history. It was the Civil War, the Civil War, the Civil War, and the aftermath of the Civil War. Because you were in the South? Yes, mm -hmm. and, and this is a true story. Mm -hmm. As we walked out the door of the class at the end of the year, she shouted, and we had two world wars, and we won them both. <laughs> oh, by the way, yes. you mean? So history was not high on my list mm -hmm. of things that I wanted to do when I got to Barnard College. But I had some amazing, amazing professors. Well, I have to go out to yeah. ask you what you were doing in Mobile, Alabama, after you just <laughs> mentioned where your parents were from in the Northeast. Did they get lost? My <laughs> My father was a victim of the Depression mm -hmm. and got a job running a credit clothing store for which he was supremely ill-equipped, should have been a math professor, and they kept sending him farther and farther away from New York as he continued to fail to really make a profit, mm -hmm. and he wound up 
Sally Berkowitz oh, gosh. from Lenox Avenue yeah. in Mobile, Alabama. Uh-huh. And to my great regret, that's where I was born. Did you, not so much you maybe, but your parents feel really like fish out of water? I would say yes, although eventually there was a small Jewish community mm. and they became involved in it and they were pretty content to be there. I, however, as I tell my friends, had my bags packed in utero. <laughs> I wanted to get back. The hell out. Yes. Uh-huh. I wanted to get to New York and I headed to Barnard College. Which, of course, is in New York City. Right. But clearly you had relatives in New York. Yes. So it wasn't as if you were completely stranded in it, Alabama. That's true. And I, I apologize to all the people no, Yes, me too, to I, Alabama. You know, yeah. My brother still lives in Mobile, a beautiful, beautiful city on the Gulf of Mexico, but not for me. When you went to Barnard, you basically didn't look back. Exactly. Not only did I stay in New York, but I stayed in Manhattan for the rest of my life. I was sort of afraid they might take my visa away if I went to New Jersey or Queens. So I, I stayed in, and I live in Manhattan, and I taught in Manhattan. And people vote with their feet to come to New York. And for me, you know, de gustibus, that's what I mm-hmm. what I wanted. So you have this kind of interesting uh relationship in, in high school with with history. And you get to Barnard. Did you know what you wanted to major in? I had been in the theater guild in Mobile, and ah. I was certain I was going to be a famous Broadway actress. All right. However, I had a very thick Southern drawl. <laughs> and the casting director at Barnard said, come back when you speak English. <laughs> so, and, and of course, I realized that that was not what I should be. And I had these amazing, amazing, amazing professors. And I realized that it combined the two things that I was good at, reading Mm -hmm. and writing. They're the only two things I've ever been able to do in life. And I could write the stories of people from the past. And it just clicked for me. And beginning of sophomore year, I knew that was what I wanted to do. That you wanted to study our history. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And what was the draw? It was a process of elimination. My my hero was a medievalist. And so I marched into his office senior year and said, I want to be a medieval history major. I thought, you know, castles and kings and queens. And he said... That's theatrical. Yes. Mm-hmm. He said, do you know how to read medieval French? Do you know how to read Latin? Do you know how to read... And I'm staring at him. And then he said, have a nice yes, day. And he yes. left. He yeah. said, Carol... You barely manage English. They all said that, by Because the of way. your accent? Because of my accent. I was the first person from Alabama since 1918 to go to Barnard. You're not serious. Now, today, because you can tour colleges on the Internet, they have a lot of kids from a lot of southern states, from a lot of midwestern states. But when I went to school back in the coal age, mm-hmm. everybody was from the northeast, there mm-hmm. were three of us mm-hmm. who were, and two, two were from Washington, D.C., which in Alabama didn't count Right uh, there then. And people, in a good-hearted way, just made tremendous fun of the fact that I said, y'all all, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and yes, ma'am. And, mm-hmm. But it worked wonderfully with boys because... You were such a novelty? I was such a novelty that 
Columbia made up for my years in Alabama where being smart Jewish was not going to make you prom queen. I had a date every night and two on Sunday because mm-hmm. they just wanted to hear that Southern accent. Wow. So, you know, there yeah, are pluses okay, and minuses. Okay, but okay. medieval history, not going to uh, happen. Yeah. Mm. And then I realized really that I was the longer lasting interest I would have once I got over castles and queens <laughs> was American history, that that appealed to me tremendously. So you now make this your major yes. at Barnard, and then you clearly go on to school. I go to graduate school at Columbia mm-hmm. because, of course, I didn't want to leave Manhattan. And I worked with a—I've been very, very lucky in my life. Unlike some women of my generation, I had mentors who were really encouraging And I worked with Richard Morris, who was the grand old man of American history at the time. He did, of course, assume that I would write about white men for my dissertation, which I did do. It was unheard of to write about women in colonial America. Well, all we know is Betsy Ross, for goodness sake. And she didn't even really sew the flag. Uh, she was oh, at, so this is some Kool-Aid we've been it, drinking all so these years? It's so interesting. She's referred to as a seamstress. She was an artisan. She was an upholsterer. <laughs> she made money. She was a skilled worker. And she wasn't sewing any flags. We found out a lot when we started doing, doing Uncovering. This. Oh, and don't forget Molly Pitcher. Oh, of course. An imaginary person. There was, of course, no such person. It was like Rosie the Riveter. That's what they called every woman who was with her husband or lover or father in a fort because the men would shout out at the cannons, Molly Pitcher. Molly was a familiar name, and they were to bring out pitchers Pitchers. of water to cool the cannon down. And so every woman was a Molly Pitcher. There was no such human wow. being. It's just so funny because there's a rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike. Of course, turnpike, New Jersey. Know. The <laughs> only woman they named it after is an imaginary woman. Oh, God. I'm from New Jersey. I'm so proud. Every time we passed it when my kids were young, oh, I would start, there's no such person. And my son would go, we know, we know. You know what you should have done? You should have just hung out at that rest stop with some kind with of a, a sign, placard. Yes, and there was. Was no such person. Oh, that's too funny. So all of this stuff is sticking to you, clearly, yes. as you make your way through undergraduate, graduate. And did you get your Ph.D. as soon as you got your master's? Columbia was not especially uh, woke about women. I was just going to say yeah. female-friendly. Yeah, uh, right. And so they wouldn't give me, though I had all A's in history and I got early, they wouldn't give me any money. Because as the chair of the department said, a cute young thing like you will be married and pregnant in a year. So it took me a while to get my PhD because I had to work uh, as the secretary in the social department until finally they gave me some money. What year is this? 1964. By the time I got to dissertation writing, they gave you your master's degree sort of automatically uh, a- after your first year's seminar. It took till 1972, although actually in those days, I was pretty quick. There were young men who had been working on their dissertation for 10, 12 years. Uh-huh. No one pushed you. They wanted you to do the research. 
when, when I got to my dissertation work with Richard Morris, I was treated so well. He got me money to do the work. What was your dissertation on? Jonathan Sewell. He was a Massachusetts loyalist. Okay. I mean, that was a typical dissertation subject. You didn't do a woman. You didn't do no a, kidding. a black person. Oh, you did, duh. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He nominated me for, and I won the Bancroft Award for my dissertation. Columbia University published it. And from then on, really, my career has been extremely easy. Uh, So you were made. I was made. And so despite that early, you're going to be married and pregnant, Mm -hmm. I managed to get through, I think, with a minimum of scars. So when you receive those three letters, Ph.D., Mm -hmm. what did you do professionally? My husband and I, my then husband and I sat down together and I got an offer from Chicago and an offer from upstate New York. and then To teach at the college level, teach, obviously. Yes, yes. yes, And we both said, we don't want to leave New York. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, again, I just have had a lot of good luck, I have to say. Baruch College chair called me up and he said, we need someone. Would you like to come in and interview? And I interviewed, and I got the job, and I taught for 40 years at, at City University of New yes, York. Yes, I was just going to say, for those not in the yeah. know, Baruch College is part of this rather expansive, expansive. Uh, City University, University system. I want to know, what tripped you up about the lack of learning of, about females in By American history? By the 1970s, uh, women and African-Americans and uh, Italian-Americans. People poured into graduate schools because there was a great expansion of colleges all around the country, and they needed teachers. And so the the complexion of people at Columbia changed. It wasn't all white Protestant men anymore. It was diverse. And, of course, it was the revolution after Vietnam. I mean, we were all radicals. And a group of women, not sort of in a conspiracy, but a group of women began to write back and forth to each other. You know what? I have a book. I have tenure. That was very important. Oh, sure. We got tenured. Then we could do what we wanted, right? Mm -hmm. Surely women did something. Let's go see what women did. And this amazing thing happened. We would go to archives, and they would have an inventory of a man's papers. Uh, Joe Blow's business papers, Joe Blow's political papers, Joe Blow's... And then there would be a little entry, miscellaneous. (laughs) And we would ask to see the miscellaneous folders, and there was a woman's diary, and there was a woman's letters to her daughters. It was all there. But buried. But buried. And so we would demand, we we would go up and say, we demand that you list these Then technology helped us out because, in fact... A computer can run a program that can take 50,000 wills and run it through and see how many men left money to their wives, whereas by hand, you know, it would take forever. And so we discovered that we could pursue women's lives through court records, through legal documents, through diaries, that there was more material than you could as we would say in Mobile, shake a stick to. Mm, I've used that term yeah. up here. <laughs> and so it was so energizing. It and was, jaw-dropping. Yes, and so exciting to be... We started to write these books. 
My advisor, bless his heart, said to me, oh, dear, you had such a promising career. Why are you doing this? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Later, wow. he apologized. But he, but we started publishing. When you use we, I mean, you did this collectively? No, there were four or five of us in colonial women's history. The all bulk, from Baruch? No, no. Oh, from okay. all of, but from Harvard, from okay, okay. UNC, from... I should realize but that, yeah. All, the majority of women who went into women's history did it in 19th century history because they were very interested in the impact of industrialization. And then our field was always smaller, and there were... As we used to say, we could meet in a phone booth. There were four, <laughs> maybe four or five of us. Uh-huh. Now, colonial, colonial and revolutionary history are hot topics, and there are many more. But when I say we, yeah. it, we were a very small uh, uh, set mm-hmm, of women. Mm-hmm, who's, mm-hmm. And all of us had written about men for our first book. Well, that makes sense. Right? Yeah, sure. And suddenly, people like Mary Beth Norton and Linda Kerber and Nancy Cott, we were so excited by what we were finding. Mm-hmm. And we are now referred to, I think, as the grandmothers of women's <laughs> history. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're already, most of the people who are writing now weren't even born when I got my PhD. And, and now it's an established field. So you were trendsetters, revolutionary, no pun intended, for that, for, to bring these yes. stories into the yes. classroom. So you had to basically reconfigure the focus of your coursework. Yes, and we have struggled right up until today to try to get male professors to stop teaching American history as a male experience. There are some wonderful men who are even doing women's history now. I'm not saying all of them. This is really not not a an but indictment. in those yeah. days mm-hmm. it was really hard. We we put out sample syllabi. We did we did everything. We got grants to try to show how to integrate women into your syllabus. We've made progress. Textbooks now include women's history. Mm-hmm. It's integrated in as is African American history, as is gay and lesbian sure, history. Sure, I mean, but it's text- so glacial, is what you, you're saying. And when we, I proposed at Baruch a course on women in America, and my colleagues were very suspicious of it. They said, "Well, what are you going to talk about? You're not going to talk about this big stuff about the." Equal rights amendment, are you? Mm. In other words, you're not going to be a propagandist, yeah, are yeah. you? Yeah, and you're not making this political. And at the Graduate Center, I must tell you this anecdote, I got a call from the chair. He sounded very bewildered, and he said, there are some graduate students who want a course in women's history. And I said, okay. He said, well, do you think you could teach that? And I said, well, Yes, but what women's history? There was a pause. He said, you know, women's history. So me, being a smart aleck and having tenure, I said, (laughs) you mean from Eve to Gloria Steinem? And he said, okay. (laughs) He had not the slightest idea. And I said, no, I will teach a course in American women's history. There was another pause. He said, are there any books in that? So that tells you how uphill a struggle no we kidding. had yeah. in 
trying to, and I said, yeah, there, you know, and I started reeling off names of books. That problem doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have seen the rise of women's history majors. We've seen uh, courses. So it doesn't exist anymore. But I would say until about the late 1990s, it was an uphill struggle. I mean, that's just 20 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. In terms of some highlights, what have you learned about (laughs) about us back then? I think what I've learned is that religion, science, and law have conspired from the very beginning in different forms to uh, prevent equality among men and women. In the colonial period, it was God said you were created out of Adam so that you could be his helper, his helpmate, and that's your job in life. Uh, the law said once you got married, you had no legal identity at all. You couldn't sue, you couldn't be sued, the wages you earned, you couldn't keep, your body belonged to your husband. And and nature said in those days that women's brains, that is science, right, that it was nature's way that women's brains were too weak and too small for them to be able to judge right from wrong. In the 19th century, anatomy was again destiny, and it was whether your sex organs were male or female. One was active and the other was, in theory, passive. I always tell my students, clearly these men who think the womb is passive never gave birth. right. Right. But the same thing is true today. Now we have sociobiology, left brain, right brain, women are from Mars, men. We still have laws that discriminate Mm -hmm. against women. And I... I think that what we see is that the social construction of patriarchy has been constant in this country forever. And those are the times when I then go get a glass of wine, you know, when I recognize that. But do you feel that what you're teaching, at the risk of me being dramatic, is so empowering to your students? Yes. I think that when they learn that their circumstance is in the vernacular of my discipline, socially constructed and not eternal and ahistorical and God-given or natural, it's wonderful for them. I mean, it's, it's, it is very empowering for them to realize that the reason women are the objects in art rather than the subjects, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. gazes on them. Right. It's not because that's the natural way for art to be, but it's because artists and art academies were run by men. And I think that that spurs whether women articulate it that way or not. That spurs this recognition that you can, you can go against the grain, and that's the best that that a historian can hope for. But did, is that what these women did, or was it just, and I, and I use the term in quotes, happenstance and circumstance for them to, you know, roll up their sleeves and get out there? It wasn't so much that they were going to change the course of history, because clearly, in a way, they didn't. You mean didn't. In, in early America? Exactly, I do. Early American women didn't have a collective understanding of socially constructed norms. I mean, their ministers told them to be quiet and not to pay attention to politics. The revolution 
transformed That's it. what I'm yes. referring to. The revolution politicized women's domestic life instantly. When people talk about what was radical about the American Revolution, I believe this is one of the most radical things. The, that whether you bought British cloth or British tea or not, uh -huh. when England started imposing all these taxes, uh -huh. that was a political act. Who were the consumers? Women. And they came to see themselves literally overnight as daughters of liberty, which means that they had a political understanding of themselves. And during the American Revolution, they participated in boycotts. They raised money for the army. They dressed as men and fought in the American army. They, no kidding. They, they were engaged in every... They were Mali pitchers, and many of those women got wounded. And we have 250 applications from women to the Confederation Congress saying, I am a veteran who was wounded in the following... Uh, uh, battle. Uh -huh. So we have this extraordinary recognition by women that public life also belongs to them. Mm -hmm. And after the American Revolution, it's not as if they got given the vote and Hello. they got given legal rights. Of course. No one was ready to do that. Right. But after the revolution, no one could really go back and say, oh, my dear, don't bother yourself about those little you know, uh, political things. And women said, you've got to educate us. If you want us to raise your sons to be patriots, we, we have to know the history of the country. We have to know political theory. We have to know geography. We have to know the law. And young ladies' academies after uh, 1787 arose in every single state, including Georgia, from 1787 to 1848. It's just a blip. And in 1848, Seneca Falls. Ah. There is a, you know, education is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Yeah. yeah. So, so the revolution was a major turning point for women. It doesn't mean women ever got full equality. Right, it right. But it means that a colonial woman from, say, 1690 if she were catapulted to 1790, would not recognize her, her gender. Yeah. It wow. was so transformative. And that's one reason why I try to focus on the revolution, because I believe it is a major turning point. Well, it's also, everything is so hidden. You know, when I did some research about you, and, and in terms of your research, really, it was jaw-dropping. You know, I gave a two-hour talk on this at One Day University. And... People were spellbound, not because, I, you know, I was twirling flaming batons or anything, <laughs> but because they had never heard of any of these women who were spies and saboteurs and messengers in critical moments between American generals that determined uh, the fate of, uh, of a battle. They didn't know Molly Pitcher wasn't a real person. They didn't know women were responsible for the Stamp Act being repealed and the Townsend Acts being repealed because of their boycotts. And I think I could have talked for six hours and they would have stayed in their seats. So there is a kind of hunger for, I think about uh, the X-Files, the truth is out there. And really, historians are now sort of the bearers of that truth. 
And people care. Well, and also the fact that you have been a talking head, you know, on PBS and History Channel to get an even wider audience. Your, it's a mission, is critical. Don't you feel that way? Yes. I have always, unlike some of my historical colleagues who only write books for the people in their field, Mm -hmm. I have switched long ago to trade books to books for general readers, mm-hmm. uh, Civil War Wives, Revolutionary Mothers, uh, Sovereign uh, People. All of those books are on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're available. And, and they're, they're not textbooks. They're books exactly. for you to read and, 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 and learn from. And they're written without jargon, and they're not esoteric, because I think it is, I, I hate to sound really on a soapbox. Go. I think it is our obligation to reach out to non-members of our profession and tell them what we know. This is, again, a mission. You must do this. Yes, yes. That, that is the mission I do feel. Uh, when I started writing trade books, colleagues of mine went... Oh, like you were, were you selling out? Yes. Oh, this is not real scholarship. But of course it is. Oh, geez. Hundreds of footnotes. But I try to write so that intelligent people who aren't historians. I try to write so that my brother, who is an intelligent, successful man, can read my books and learn something Uh from them. Uh And you are right, though it sounds corny. I do feel that is my mission. What are you doing now in terms of the the fact (laughs) that you've retired from teaching? It is my younger colleagues. The baton has been passed Mm -hmm. to them. Mm I have two granddaughters. I've been writing for 40 years. (laughs) Writing is a very isolating experience. Mm -hmm. Research, you don't do it with a group of people. Research and writing is you all alone with your thoughts and what you've discovered in the archives. It's disciplined. It's demanding. Your thoughts are always there. You wake up in the morning and you say, you know, can I can I get past what I wrote yesterday? I still run institutes. I still do teacher education. Mm-hmm. But writing and research, too demanding for me right now. And how great to acknowledge that <laughs> and to move on. We've run out of time, oh. but it was so interesting. And thank you for doing what you've done. Oh, well. You know, that's so seminal. And... W- the world needs more Carol Birkin. <laughs> well, there are some who would say not, but well, who needs them? Uh, but, you know. But thank you. Uh, I I'm proud, and of you, my and career. damn well should be. I you am. know. Thank you so much for sharing. Sure. Thank uh, you I for really enjoyed meeting me. you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. But he, but I'm